So we've been looking um, over the past couple of weeks as we kind of stepped into Advent and the season of Advent, we've been looking at this season through the lens of celebration. Um, actually, Brandon started us on this journey a few weeks ago, albeit through video because we were on a, whatever, a 10-day, I don't know, hiatus, COVID break, whatever, whatever those things are and will continue to happen, I'm sure. Brandon did it via video. Um, hopefully you got a chance to see that. If you haven't, it's online. You can jump on our website and check it out. But he introduced us to this idea of celebrating Jesus or the Savior, the coming Savior, as the light. And we've been looking at sort of the light and the love. And this morning we're going to talk about the celebration of the life of the Savior, this sort of anticipation that comes and the celebratory nature of which we step into not just this season, but life as a whole as followers of Christ. That our lives should be this sort of wrapped up beautiful celebration because of who Jesus is and what he came to do and the incarnation, the embodiment of God in the person of Jesus Christ marks us with this incredible moments of celebration. But unfortunately, most of our lives as followers of Christ are not, Christ are not marked by celebration. They're marked by struggle or strife or frustration or anxiety or worry. But if you really look at what Christ has done for us, our lives should be moments of celebration in the midst of all that the world throws at us. And so we're exploring sort of the celebration of Jesus for all that he is uh, as we look at the light and the love and the life of the Savior. Last week we explored uh, the sort of the celebration of the love of Christ. We looked at one of my favorite parables. We talked about the relentless sort of pursuing, redemptive, joyfully celebrative love of Christ through the lens of the parable of the lost sheep. And we talked about how God's love was this sort of endlessly, relentlessly pursuing, celebratory kind of love um, that, does it, that finds us and pursues us. And we explored that. And so this week we're going to be looking through the, the celebration through the lens of the, the life of Christ. And I started thinking kind of long and hard about the ways that we could approach the life of Christ because naturally we may want to lean towards the sort of kind of historical nature of Jesus and who he was and what he came to do and the expressions of his miracles and all these kind of incredible things, um, which is true. But I thought really where I wanted to be, where my heart truly was, is, is what the celebration of the life of Christ should be and do in me right now. So as opposed to where and who Jesus was, what it means for me and what it means for you, and the fact that we are called to understand the relentless, incredible nature of the life of Christ and how it changes us and should impact how we live and how we think, um, and it calls us to this incredible idea of freedom. And so we're going to be exploring that lens today through this idea of freedom, that we have freedom in the life of Christ because of what he did and how he set us free and what that freedom means for us. So if you got your Bible, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be there for the most part um, this morning as we sort of explore this idea um, of the celebration of the life of Christ, the lens and idea of being set free. Uh, because most of us, maybe we don't feel like we're held in bondage, maybe we don't feel like we need to be set free, but if you really look at Scripture, we are deeply tied to some things that Christ has come to set us free from. So to prepare our hearts to do that, let's take a few moments, let's pray, uh, and let's invite the Lord to teach our hearts this morning. But let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to gather here today. I know that there are a lot of places in this country and around the world that don't have this freedom. Some because of the current situation that we're in, whether it's a pandemic or just a health issue for some folks, Lord, but also places in the country where, or around the world where people just can't gather. Um, whether governments forbid it or uh, the opportunity doesn't arise, there's not enough believers. And so, Lord, we, 
I've so come to take for granted um, the corporate nature of church. Um, and I love the fact that we can gather. And if anything, this season has reminded me how much I long and desire to worship with people. And the corporate nature of worship and how important that is in the life of a follower of Christ. And so, Lord, on this snow day in the middle of COVID and whatever, we're just really grateful to gather. Whether we can't open our kids' rooms or have to wear masks or sit far apart, it's still worth it um, to be able to gather in this place and worship together. So, Lord, we pray for the other communities around our city. Up and down Western, across our, uh, our metro, Lord, through the state, country, world, God, we pray that you would uh, fill them with hope. God, that you would let them be lights in the darkness, Lord, that you would empower those communities to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world. Lord, this season of Advent unites us all as followers of Christ. It reminds us what you've done for us and what we cannot do for ourselves. And we celebrate that incredible truth. And so this morning we ask that you would teach our hearts. That you would remind us what it means to be set free by the life of Jesus. To be redeemed and set apart. And so, Lord, teach our hearts just for a moment. Just prepare us to hear your word. Take a moment in your own heart, just right where you sit, and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Does it need to be groundbreaking or unbelievably new? Just ask the Lord to teach your heart. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know their name. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Um, pray that God would move in their life, even if you don't know them. Maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your wife or your kids, or maybe it's just somebody that you've just met. Just pray. Just say, God, I want you to move in this person's life. Lord, we turn our opportunity to gather this morning over to you. We ask you to move in us. We don't invite you in this place. We know you're already here. There's nowhere we can go to escape your presence. Lord, your Holy Spirit is everywhere. And so, Lord, we just surrender our hearts to your move. Teach us through your word. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we don't take it lightly. And so, God, instruct our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I started thinking about freedom... And about what we've been given by the life of Christ and what that means for us, I naturally was drawn to Ephesians 2. Because Ephesians 2, Paul's writing to the church of Ephesus and he's reminding the church essentially that they can do nothing to earn God's merit, his love, his favor. They can't do anything but that God freely, because he loves them, has rescued them from who they once were and set them on a path of true life. Which is exactly what I think about when I think about the idea of the celebration of the life of Christ. That I, Treb Prater, cannot do anything on my own. And I don't deserve God's love, yet God freely lavishes it out and sets me free from the things that once held me in bondage to actually live true, real, abundant life that begins right now in this moment. And this is what Paul is telling the church at Ephesus. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up Ephesians 2. We're going to look at those first 10 verses and we'll move through them kind of quickly this morning. But this is Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. 
All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we are by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even though we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved, and God raised you up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming years he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. By works, but not by works, so that no one can boast. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, in which God prepared in advance for us to do. Fielder, you're the man. It's good to see you this morning, Bubba. So you got this sort of long, drawn-out, but amazing passage of incredibly rich theological truth that basically frames the entire idea of the gospel in ten verses. If you ever wanted a really great snapshot, you don't have to turn to Romans. You can actually just turn right here, and it's going to give you a picture of what we have been set free from when we send our lives to Christ and what that means for us. But in terms of what we're talking about this morning, here's what I want you to understand. I want you to understand that Christ gives us freedom. He actually sets us free from a few things, and he sets us free to do a few things. And the first thing that we see in these passages that he sets us free from is he sets us free from the ways of the world. So it's very clear, Paul's basically saying it's very clear that once we were all held captive by the things of the world. So before we met Jesus or before we walked with Christ, we are held enslaved or in bondage to the things of the world. We are enslaved by those things. And there's really two categories that that falls into, all right? That we, are, we have been set free from pleasing ourselves, and we've been set free from pleasing the world. Those are the things that sort of capture us. And Paul mentions it by saying we were basically caught up in trying to satisfy or gratify the desires of our own sinful nature. So the first thing that Christ sets us free from through his life and death and resurrection is the idea that we are called to please ourselves. Now, most of us probably wouldn't think that we're all that selfish, but the reality is that the orientation of our heart is incredibly selfish. We are driven by our personal sinful nature and our cultural sinful nature to take care of ourselves first. You can look at the questions we ask ourselves, even in our prayer life to God. God, what do you want for me? What am I supposed to do? Everything is driven by the questions that surround me. And we are taught in our culture that we've got to look out for number one. Make sure you take care of yourself, right? We are framed that way. We are by nature Beings that are created in a selfish sort of sinful way. Not created that way, but created to act in that way because of our sinful nature. And so what Paul's saying is that left up to your own devices, you will chase and pursue your gratification of yourself. That's what you will do. You will want what is best for you. All of us are that way. It's why we get so upset when things don't go our way, when we get our feelings hurt, when people step on us, when all those things happen, because we are geared to say that everything that unfolds is about me. We want recognition at work for the things that we do. We want recognition at home for the things that we do. It's why we can't simply serve and do something without being noticed. We want and need the recognition because the sinful nature of our souls craves that gratification. It's why I can't wash my wife's car and have her not recognize it. I have to wait like a day, and then finally I'm like, hey, your car is so clean. She's like, oh, thank you. I'm like, yeah. 
Thank me, right? A little something for daddy-o, right? I mean, we, we are driven by this desire. But see, the, the idea is that the life and death of Christ, when we surrender our hearts and sets us free from trying to gratify those sinful, selfish parts of us. Because the core nature of the gospel is death to self. That everything that we are, are doing as followers of Christ should be trying to put to death that desire that says it's about me. So Jesus actually sets us free from that first part of the way of the world, which is saying, I have to have what's mine. I need to be recognized. I have this sinful, selfish nature. Jesus actually frees us from that because my self-worth is no longer attached to what people say about me, as we looked at a few weeks ago. My identity is actually now sewn up in Christ. And therefore, I am because he is. So when we truly follow Christ... We are free from the idea that my identity is attached to what I do or how I perform or what people say about me, but I am who Jesus says I am. I am beloved, I have been renamed, and I have been made new, and therefore I am free from pursuing the selfish side that says I have to have. But it also sets us free from the idea of not just pleasing ourselves, but from pleasing the world. Most of us are trapped here. We're trapped in the idea of that my life and existence is really about pleasing people. And we really do it in two ways, right? We do it in comparison and we do it in conformity. This is how we think about the world around us. We are constantly in a place of comparing our lives to other people's lives. We look around at what they have and what they're doing. It doesn't just have to be material. Maybe it's, it's their life or they're married and I'm not. Or maybe they have this or they don't. Or maybe all these things keep happening to them. Or maybe, you know, social media that fuels this idea paints us in this corner of comparison. Because we're constantly thrust into the idea of saying, why don't I? Or when is mine? Or what if we could? Or if I just had this, then everything would be okay. Because we're glancing at the people and places around us saying, I need or I want or I long for my life to look like that. And of course it's a lie because the pictures that we look at of everybody else aren't truly accurate, right? Social media is a great picture of this. It's designed to give a snapshot of something that's a little bit inauthentic. right? It's the same reason, and I've said this a zillion times, that we walk into this church and we see husbands and wives holding hands when they fought the whole way here. Because we're trying to paint a different picture of ourself for the world. And then what happens is that when we see that picture being painted, I become discontent with my own life because I'm looking at somebody else's lie that I think is true, and it's this giant circle of comparison. And we're all comparing ourselves, thinking everybody's life is better than ours, and we're all just broken. And this sort of vicious circle of comparison is really detrimental. And most of it falls into the idea of material things or financial wealth, but really it's also relational. Most of us long for something that we don't have. Instead of being willing to fight and work for what's right in front of us, we want easy ways out. And so we look at the people around us and we say, I wish my family was that or my kids didn't cuss or, you know, whatever, you know, these things. But Jesus sets us free from that idea of being able to compare ourselves to the people around us. Because like the freedom that we have from saying my identity is in Christ, that actually kind of spans the gap of what the world says I must have to be happy. The world will tell you you have to be this, and it tells Christians a whole lot of things, like if you're not married, or you're not this, or your kids aren't like this, or you don't have this, or you don't whatever, then you're not okay. And we see that comparison across the spectrum, right? We look in the mirror and we think, this is really what I'm working with, right? 
I'm so disappointed in this. I'm too fat. I'm too thin. My chins are getting longer. Like, whatever. I got gray hair all over the head here. I'm getting old. I look in the mirror one day, and I don't recognize who I am. I look at people around me, and I think, man, if we just put it together like they were, we get tossed in this trap. But Jesus sets us free from that lie because the essential gospel says that I am enough for you. And if we truly believe that, that I am enough for you, then these words in Ephesians make a whole lot of sense when he says that we were once dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live. We tried to live among them, gratifying the desires of our cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. This is the sinful nature in us, that idea of comparison, of, of, of following those desires, even though we know they're poisonous and wrong. But the thing that comparison leads us to is conformity. So once we compare our lives to somebody else, we're thinking, what is it going to take for me to get there? I want to conform to what everybody else is doing or what they have. I want my life to look like that. And Paul in Romans warns the church about this. He says, listen, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Because when we say yes to Jesus, we're saying, put to death my old way of thinking, renew my mind, and don't let me conform to the lie. Because the lie will not fill and it will not satisfy. We have been set free from it. You have been set free as a follower of Christ from the lie of saying, I have to please the world, both in me and around me. And there's no harder time to do that than Christmas, right? Because as soon as you turn on the TV, there's those dadgum Lexus ads, right? In which the family is incredibly stunning, and they have this monster house, and their children are beautiful, and it's snowing, and no one's cold. And they're standing out there in their pajamas, and mom is so happy because she's got this new car and somehow she gave him a new car and none of them knew because they're not financing anything. They just dropped from the sky. And everybody's happy and it's the season to remember. Yeah, you ever tried to buy a car with your wife or husband? Tell me how that went. It never goes well. You're there for eight freaking hours, right? Signing papers and then mad and somehow you're like, how did we get the undercoating? What is that? Rust proofing. Keys? I had to pay for keys? whole thing, right? Because we're stuck in this place of feeling like if we could just be there. And Jesus sets us free from that. We've been free. The other thing that we see that Jesus sets us free from is this idea of sin and death, this reality of sin and death, that we were once dead in our transgressions and sins. If you've come here very long, you know from whether it's me or Brandon, we are constantly talking about the idea that we are dead in our sin. We're not sick, we're not dying. It's not this sort of gentle plague that kind of runs through us all. Sin leads us into death and therefore without Christ we are absolutely and totally dead. You are not in a bad place, you're not in a difficult place. Without Jesus you are lost and dying and dead and gone and there is no hope, period. But Jesus sets us free from sin and death. He has made us alive in Christ. Now, this idea of alive has two real connotations to it. And I've talked about this at length before. And I'll just do it quickly today. The two connotations are that he has made us alive both for the promise of what's to come in eternal life, but also for the reality of that life that begins today. Most of us hold on to the idea that I'm saved, which means when I die, I will be able to spend eternity with God in heaven. And that is true. 
But most of us fail to remember that that eternal life begins in this very moment, which means you are created to have an abundant, true, real, amazing, incredible, pursuing life right this moment. God does not desire for you to slog through this earth for 70-something years until you die when you can finally be happy. That is a lie. God wants you to have beautiful, abundant, joy-filled life the moment that your heart is captured by him. That abundant and eternal life begins today. And he has set you free from sin and death in the future, from the wrath of God, and he has set you free from the trap of sin and death today. The lies of the enemy that says you are who you were, your story is unredeemable. The lies of the enemy that says you will never be better. The truth is, is that the gospel, the freedom, the life of Christ sets us free to live this joyful, abundant life today. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. It's this complete newness in Christ. And Ephesians 2 is dripping with it. You've been made alive in Christ. You were once dead. He's looking at the church in Ephesus saying, you don't have to wait until you die to seize this incredible gift. You've been given it today, which means that you weren't created to slog through an unhappy marriage. God redeems all things, which means he can redeem the brokenness in your life, in your relationships, in your workplace. He can take what you think is a disastrous financial life and find joy in the midst of working it out. Because you have been given life in Christ. You have been set free from sin and death. And we're not just simply talking about physical death. We're talking about spiritual death, that poison that runs through our soul that leads me into selfishness and comparison and conformity. You've been set free from that lie. You don't have to look around you and wish you had something else. What you've been given is a gift from the Lord, and he has given you new fresh eyes to see it because he has made you alive. So we know as we look at this section in Ephesians that we have been set free by Jesus from the ways of the world, the pursuit of ourself, the pursuit of the world around us, comparison, conformity, been set free from sin and death. But what we really see, too, is that, is that the life of Jesus sets us free to truly live. And in order to understand that, you've got to understand this idea of grace that he talks about in verses 8 and 9. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves, not by yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Most of us think we understand grace, we can talk about it, but we sure don't apply it to our lives like we've been given it. In order to truly understand that you've been set free to live, you've got to understand what grace is. And grace, by definition, is God's undeserved favor and his unmerited love. That's it. It doesn't have to get any more complicated than that. God's undeserved favor and his unmerited love. And grace really comes from two places. It comes from the idea that God loved you first. So here you are, dead in your transgressions and sins. And look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. The greatest statement in all of Scripture is right there in verse 4 when it says, Because of God's great love for us. Say, here I was dead, but because of God's great love. Meaning there was no other solution but because of God's great love, he made us alive in Christ. Not because of what you did, because you recognized it and said, oh man, I need to get out of this. No, you were dead, but because God loved you, 
He made you alive in Christ, meaning that grace begins with God's love for you when you can do nothing for yourself. You can't work your way out of it. You can't argue your way out of it. You can't think your way out of it. You are dead in your sin, and God has set you free to truly live because he loves you. Not because he has to. Not because that's just sort of who God is, but because he loves you. And it's really important to hear this because most of us believe that God is love. And we look at the people around us and we say God can love anyone. But we very seldom can apply that truly to our own lives and heart. Because we know what goes on in here. I know what I think. I know the words and thoughts that run through my mind. And they are horrible. I'm a sinful, broken person. I often don't feel like God can truly love me. But if I understand the gospel its entirety then I have to come to grips with the idea that even in that state that I'm in, this dead, broken state, because of his love for me, he did what I cannot do. Grace, God's undeserved favor. In other words, God gives me favor when I don't deserve it. An unmerited love, meaning I did nothing to earn it. I wasn't kind, I wasn't nice, I didn't say please and thank you, I didn't put my dishes up, none of those things. I did nothing, I did the opposite. In fact, every day I do something that God calls me not to do, and yet his love is unmerited. I did not merit it or earn it. So this begins with God's love, and I can and you can, will never do anything to deserve it. You have to understand that because we have lived in this place of trying to please God from a performance standpoint. We try and perform for people. We do it for our parents. We talked about this last week, actually. We try to live under this lie that says, if I do these things, then you will show me love. We learned that from an early age. This is all I talked about last week. I learned from an early age that if I performed well, the people around me would show me love. If I performed well academically, my mom would say, you're a great kid. If I performed well athletically, my dad would say, I'm proud of you. If I was morally decent, the people around me would say, man, you've got a really good son. And I learned that I could get the approval and love of people by how I performed. And that for a long time transferred over to my spiritual life. I just felt like if I told God how hard I was trying, if I tried to show him, I'm just trying to, you know, I'm blue that God, I'm going to do better this time. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to do these things more. That I could earn some kind of favor where God says, you know what, I'm going to forgive you because you have been working really hard. I mean, it's just a theological lie. But it's how we're driven. You cannot perform for God. No amount of showing up at church, no amount of praying more, reading your Bible more is going to do anything. The reality is it's all God's move. Those things are all a response to God's incredible love. Praying more, coming to church, going to Bible, all those kind of things should be responses to the fact that God has done this for me. Therefore, I get to know him. He has invited me into that place. So grace is this idea that we have to wrestle with and really understand to truly get the idea that we've been called and set free to live. Truly live. Not live under this sort of cage of oppression. This cage of fear or anxiety. This cage of performance. This cage of the world, a comparison or conformity, just we've been set free. You no longer have to believe those lies. The life of Jesus has set us free from the ways of the world, free from sin and death, and set us free to truly live, truly live. 
And sadly, most of us as followers of Christ know this, and yet we sit handcuffed, and they're not even locked. We just allow the chains to hold us down. And they have been broken and set free. And it's time for us to rise up. Because look at this incredible promise that he ends with in verse 10. This is what Paul ends with. He says, listen, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So he said all these things that God sets us free for are for this singular true purpose. And it's a great, incredible promise that we, that you are God's workmanship. The Greek word there actually connotates a work of art. That you are God's great work of art. That you are his workmanship. That you are his creation. That as Psalm 139 says, he has breathed life into your very lungs. You are his craftsmanship. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't do accidents. He doesn't say oops. He made you intentionally breathe life into you and calls you his work of art. Even in the crazy, disobedient, broken, sinful state that you are, God remakes and redeems. So right now as you sit here, you have to understand that you are God's beautiful, created work of art. And you are not a throwaway and you are not a mistake, no matter how hard things are, no matter how difficult you are, no matter how, lack, how much you have a feel like you have a lack of faith, no matter how wrecked part of your soul is, no matter what it is that you're hiding, it is not beyond God's incredible, redeeming, set free kind of love because he made you as his work of art. And he is constantly shaping and forming you and creating in you who he made you to be. So we have God's workmanship. And the second thing we see in that promise is that he has a plan for your life. He has created in you and has works for you to do, good works for you, which he prepared in advance. In other words, not only is God not done with you, but he's got this incredible plan for your life. He's got this incredible plan. He has prepared things for you to do that are good. They're good. And he has created you and he has promised that he has set them for you to do. Meaning that God has a real plan for you. You're not spinning your wheels. You're not just sitting around wondering. God has this incredible plan for you. So when we celebrate the life of Christ, what we're really talking about is the idea that we've been set free from the pattern of this world. Set free from sin and death. Set free to truly live. Why? Because of this incredible promise. That God has made you and created you, breathed life into your lungs, and he has this incredibly beautiful plan for your life. No matter how hard things may feel right now, no matter how difficult they may be, God is at work and he is always working. 